God saves us from ourselves. Peace to you, friends and members. My name is Luke. Uh, it is an honor to share God's word with you this morning. For those uh, listening in the other room, I, even though I can see you, I do want to say a special hello to you back there. Uh, thank you for bearing with this special rune arrangement that we need to make during this time. Before we keep going, I also want to acknowledge the Chinese New Year by giving you a blessing the traditional Chinese way. I think the locals call these Zhu Fu Yu. Hu Nian Dao, Hu Nian Hao. Hu Nian Guo Jie, Zheng Huan Nao. Hu Nian Lai, Hu Nian Hai. Hu Nian Zhu Fu Zui Jing Cai. Zhu Da Jia Zai Yesu Jidu Li, Ru Hu Ban Wu Chu, Xin De Nian. Zhu Ge Wei Hu Qi, Chong Tian, Hu Nian Kuai Le. Well, even the, you didn't get that basic guy plus everyone with tiger-like bonus in this new year of the tiger, or maybe something like that, you can ask others. As John mentioned last week, we are dividing up the preaching uh, a little differently this year. John will continue to preach in the Gospel of Luke. Several other brothers will continue to preach in the Gospel, I mean, in 1 Corinthians. And we'll continue to have guest preachers like Marco last week that come and share from different parts of the Bible. For me, this new year, I have the privilege of digging through the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah with us all. I know many people, including myself, struggle reading the Old Testament of the Bible. There are historical and cultural references to understand. Uh, there are laws and literary features to navigate. But I, I challenge us to not shy away from reading the Old Testament. Bible tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And this includes the Old Testament of the Bible. God has given us many resources to understand the scripture, so I would encourage all of us to use them. You know, these resources include Bible studies that many of you go to with other believers. They include books and, and study guides that we have. But most importantly, the most important resource that we, we have is that God has for us through scriptures, and even today. So today we'll be in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to the beginning of the Bible in the Old Testament. So I just want to help us kind of be oriented in the Old Testament for a little bit. The Old Testament, if you don't know, is comprised of 39 books. They can be divided roughly into, or they could be divided into four sections. First sections, it's called the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. The second section, the historical books, consists of 12 books from Joshua to Esther. So if you're kind of flipping there in, the, in your Bible, you'll kind of see these books. The third section, the books of poetry. And these five books include Psalms and Proverbs, which are most familiar to most of us. And if you keep flipping or maybe scrolling on your device, the fourth and the last section of the Old Testament is the books of the prophets. And so this section includes 17 books from Isaiah to Malachi. A really good resource that I recommend to help read and understand this section of the Bible, the books of the prophets, is a book called How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets by Peter Gentry. So how to read and understand the biblical prophets by Peter Gentry, G-E-N-T-R-Y. Anyway, if you uh, want, you can write that down. I think that will be something helpful as you go through maybe different prophets in the Bible. So Isaiah, in this last section of the Old Testament, you know, he's often thought of as the greatest of the prophets. And maybe we can understand this because the book of Isaiah is one of the most quoted 
Old Testament book in the New Testament. Actually, the name Isaiah means the Lord says. The Lord says can sum up pretty much the entire message of the book of Isaiah. In fact, there are some that would say Isaiah is like the fifth gospel. So the fifth gospel like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. No, we could maybe call it the gospel according to Isaiah because it pointed so much to Jesus as the way God will save his people. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus around 700 years before Jesus was born. So if you remember back in December, right before Christmas, I preached from Isaiah chapter 9. And back then I mentioned you know, Isaiah is a prophet of God. And prophets in the Bible means messengers for God. They deliver God's message to people on God's behalf. So it's not like they can see the future, but they deliver a message from God who do know the future. So Isaiah's message from God to the people of Israel is essentially that God will bring judgment, but God, just like Isaiah's name, also promised salvation to his people. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters, and, and they can be grouped into two major parts. Part one from chapter one to 39 talk mainly about the coming judgment for Israel's rebellion. And part two from chapter 40 to 66 is mainly about the comfort of a promised salvation after this judgment. So today we'll start in the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. So again, if you have your Bible, you can turn there to Isaiah chapter 1. you also find the whole chapter printed for us in the bulletin. So it's quite a few pages, I believe, in there. In the future, I would recommend you bring a copy of the Bible, you know, when we, when we study the next uh, portion of Isaiah. You know, we might go through multiple chapters, so we will probably only be able to print out the main portion related to sermon in the bulletin. So it's helpful to have the rest of it as a reference. So today I will take us through Isaiah chapter 1, and I will try my best to explain and give us background and other things to help us to understand as we go through this chapter, I will also help us to think about applications for us. You know, we now live some 2,800 years after Isaiah prophesied these things to the Israelites. You know, how, how do these things apply to us? So that's our tradition. Here's the main idea for our message today and a simple outline to guide us. The main idea today is this. God saves us from ourselves. So I really have to credit my wife, Anita, for this main idea because I was all over the place trying to sum up the main idea that God has for us from this chapter. And after I rambled on for maybe quite a while, she says, I think you are trying to express that God saves us from myself. So I think that's a good one. So not only does God save his people from their enemy, but God also saves us from ourselves. Well, how does God save us from ourselves? So this will form our outline for today. Number one, God admonishes from verse one to four. God admonishes. And number two, God explains. From verse five through 17, God explains. And number three, God promises. Verse 18 to 31, God promises. So let's dig in. The first section, God admonishes to save us from ourselves. Admonish means to warn or to reprimand firmly, to advise or urge earnestly the danger someone is in. So let's look at how God admonished sinful and rebellious Judah. So let's start in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the day of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this verse, is, this first verse tells us immediately who, the, the who, what, when, where, and why of the book. So first, who is the author? The author is Isaiah. You know, by giving his father's name Amos, it's like calling someone by, by their first and last name kind of to avoid confusion with maybe, you know, perhaps another Isaiah of that time. 
So this is Isaiah, whose father's name is Amos. So what is the purpose of the book? It says there is a vision or message that Isaiah saw from God, and Isaiah is delivering this message to God's people. And number three, when do these events take place? It says there in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So first we need to know about Judah. Well, Israel was split into the northern and southern kingdom after the death of King Solomon, who is the son of King David. The northern kingdom was called the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom is called the kingdom of Judah. So Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings for the southern kingdom of Judah. And, And those kings reigned from around 767 B.C. to 686 B.C., So this would also put Isaiah's ministry in that time frame also. So lastly, where do these events take place? This is also quite plain, you know, written there. That the verses tells us the vision that Isaiah saw is concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So specifically the southern kingdom, Judah, and Jerusalem, the holy city. So let's keep on reading. Verse 2, here... O heavens, and give ear, O earth. But the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. In verse 2 there, it's almost like a court scene, right? The Lord God calling on the heavens and the earth as witnesses to the charges that he is bringing to Israel. He's calling the nation of Israel out. He's confronting them of their wickedness. And if you have the ESV version of the Bible, a subheading was added there, wickedness of Judah. And to help us, you know, kind of understand this section there. The Lord is admonishing his people. God is calling on heavens and earth to bear witness to the charges he is bringing that he has spoken to Judah. But in the midst of these accusations, condemnation, and and, and really harsh rebukes. Notice how God is doing this out of love, out of a relationship. If you look there, he calls them children in verse 2, and my people in verse 3. Children that God has reared and brought up in an image of a a parent pouring out time, and effort and love and energy to, to, to bring up a child, you know, putting their whole hearts into this child. And you, you see that God's intention is still to carry out the covenant that he has made with Israel, you know, his chosen people, you know, to save them from themselves. I want to spend a couple of minutes you know, on this biblical idea of a covenant because I think it's important for us to the understanding of the writing of Old Testament, you know, especially you know, in the book of Isaiah, in the prophets like Isaiah. Isaiah, like all prophets, calling Israel, God's chosen people, back to the covenant God made with them. Now, specifically at this point in history, the covenant that God made with the Israelites through Moses. Now, in Exodus 19.5, God says, to the Israelites. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. And when Moses delivered the message to the Israelites, you know, they all agreed in verse 8. It says, All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So in this Mosaic covenant, Israelites were responsible to follow the law, and God promised to bless and protect Israel. 
know, in the in the Bible, the idea of a covenant is is not like a a business contract or or like a marketplace agreement. No, a typical contract that we are used to is is um, made by mutual agreement. You know, based on an expected benefit and performance. But a covenant, however, is an agreement between two parties making binding a relationship of faithfulness and loyalty in love. In another word, a covenant is based on a desire for relationship. So, members of WSBC, now when we reaffirm our covenant with one another, you know, remember it's not about performance or if expected benefit that we get from one another, but it's about a desire for loving relationship with one another. Anyways, we digress a little bit. And the reason we are talking about the biblical idea of covenant is because prophets like Isaiah in the Bible, their job is to call God's people back to the covenant God has made with them. Now I want us to see this is out of this relationship that God is admonishing Judah through Isaiah. So what are the specific charges that God laid out against Judah? Well, it says rebellion in verse 2 and sinfulness in verse 4, right? He says they have rebelled against me. And not only run away, but join the opposition against God. He uses an illustration of, of animals knowing their owner, knowing who will feed them, and knowing you know, his home, going back to the master's place. Maybe we can see this around us in you know, someone that owns a, a pet dog or something like that, right? The dog will go to his owner when called, and, and many times they can go back to their homes all by themselves. In verse 3, God is saying that even animals knows where they belong, but the Israelites doesn't know they are God's people. They don't understand by turning away or worshiping other gods, now they are against God. Verse 4, God also pointed out Israel's sin in apparent pain, you know, that it pains him. He said, ah, sinful nation with iniquity or or NIV translate as, as iniquity, as guilt, meaning they are guilty of breaking his law. Evildoers who are corrupt. So talking about wickedness and injustice, they forsake the Lord and despise the Holy One of Israel. They are estranged or cut off, or NIV translate to turn their back on God. Their problem is beyond being able to fix by themselves is also another idea of this idea of estranged. We see Isaiah call God the Holy One of Israel here for the first time. Now this is a uh, signature title that Isaiah uses throughout the book, you know, but it's really, it, it rarely appears in other parts of the Old Testament. I think this probably shows Isaiah's view of God as set apart, as righteous, as incomparable, as lofty, but has at the same time that he has given himself to Israel, the Holy One of Israel. It is out of this relationship that God is admonishing his people in Judah and in Jerusalem. For us today, now, we, we do need to view God's covenant with the nation of Israel in light of Jesus Christ. Part of the law that the Israelites had to follow was a blood sacrifice for the atonement of their sin. So in order not to be guilty of breaking God's law and suffer his judgment, they had to bring an animal blood sacrifice to atone or to pay for their sins. Now, they had to continually do this because there was no way for the Israelites not to break God's law. The law was given to them as a part of the Mosaic Covenant. So if you are interested in these laws, you know, from the Mosaic of, uh, Covenant, 
you can read the book of Deuteronomy. They can be interesting, um, but they could also be quite a handful. Well, in the New Testament, we see that Jesus did not abolish the law of blood sacrifice, but rather he fulfilled the law that God gave the Israelites. Jesus died on the cross as the blood sacrifice to atone for the sin of all mankind. Jesus' resurrection ushered in a new covenant for anyone that repent and believe so that they can be God's people. You know, this is exactly what we read earlier in the scripture reading you know, in Hebrews 10.9. Jesus does away with the first in order to establish the second. The first there is talking about the Mosaic covenant now being satisfied and obsolete. And the second is talking about the new covenant being established by Jesus. We can become God's people by repenting and believing in Jesus' death and resurrection as the only way to atone for our sins. Or in other words, to pay for our rebellion against God. So let me ask you, how have you rebelled against God? Or how have we rebelled against God? If you are here today and not yet a Christian, you know, this is God's admonishment for you. Stop rebelling against him. Stop rebelling against him. But maybe you say, how, how can I rebel against someone I don't even know? Well, great news. There are many Christians here that would be very glad to help you to get to know God better. So your job is to ask questions. So if you're not yet a Christian, find someone and start asking questions about God. For believers, I really appreciate Gay's prayer earlier for us. And I think part of it is also we rebel by not calling sin what it is. And we rebel by excusing our sins many times. Maybe we say it's not a big deal. God already knows anyways, but we just let it slide. And in both of these cases, we're actually doing damage to ourselves. We need to be willing to admonish others and receive admonishing. Now, our, our covenant, the WSBC covenant does say we need to faithfully admonish one another as occasion may require. So what can we do? I think first, there might be some hard questions that we need to ask ourselves. And these may be some of them. You know, why do we look for approval from social media? Why do we fantasize with impure thoughts? Why do we lust with our eyes? Why do we idolize our work? Why do we hide things from our parents? Why do we feel justified to let loose our anger? Why do we stay in unhealthy relationships? Why do we complain? And I think as we go to God, God will ask us these questions not just to make us feel uncomfortable, but to admonish us out of love. God may be asking us other tough questions to admonish us. So, our, so for us, our action plan is first, go before God and call out the sins when we are convicted and when we recognize them. Now, I, I, I recommend either we go somewhere alone and verbally name these sins out loud to God or write them out on a piece of paper. So you might end up with sins like, you know, like something like these. 
Maybe something like, God, I'm more concerned of what others says of me than what you say of me. Or God, I have wicked and evil thoughts I do not want to give up. Maybe, God, I do not turn my eye from lustful images because I want to gratify the desire of my flesh. Oh, God, my work is my temple and my sanctuary. Oh, God, I, I hide from my parents because I'm more afraid of them than you. Oh, God, my, my selfishness and pride cause me to hurt others in anger. Oh, Lord, fear traps me in ungodly relationship instead of obedience to you. And maybe, God, it is this unthankful heart that causes me to complain. Does that make sense? We need to be honest. We need to be honest with our sins. And once we are better with naming these sins before God, I think we can better admonish one another by calling out rebellion and sins in one another. Now we need to take the planks out of our own eyes first before we can remove specks from our brother's eyes. God admonish us to save us from ourselves because now we know what is destroying us. God admonish us to save us from ourselves because now we know what is destroying us. Let's keep moving in the chapter to our second section. God explains to save us from ourselves. God explains to save us from ourselves. Explaining helps to make clear the reason for these troubles. God explains why Judah is struck down for their rebellion and why their offering is, a, is in vain because of their hypocrisy. You know, God did this to save them from themselves. So let's continue with verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Why? God asked, why? And it seems like Judah is desensitized to the consequences of rebellion, the consequence of their wickedness. You know, not even painful experiences or, or wounds you know, seem to make an impact with them. Verse 6 is an image of a person wounded from, from head to toe, you know, but, but they don't even get treated. They don't even get ointment or dressing or bandage to cover the wounds or to soothe them. You know, many times the natural consequence of sins is pain in our lives. Yet, we continue to rebel. Not even painful and unpleasant and shameful experience seem to be able to prevent us from rebelling and, and reaping the consequences of being struck down. You know, we seem to be in this downward cycle of self-destruction caused by ourselves. And this seemed to be the case with, with Judah as well. And let's keep reading in verse 7. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So Isaiah continued to, to explain the consequence of their rebellions and weakness you know, with prophecy of invasion by, by foreigners. How they will be struck down to be desolate and their cities burned up. You know, this prophecy is fulfilled in, in the Babylonian captivity of the Israelites and other invasion by, by the foreigners. In verse 8, the daughter of Zion is, is a reference to the city of Jerusalem. 
the booth and lodge and a vineyard and a cucumber field, they are temporary structures, you know, kind of like tents used by watchmen. So this is saying Jerusalem will be left like a temporary structure defenseless and like a besieged city helpless. And verse 9 continues, if, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The devastating will be so great like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, for those that don't know, Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities in Genesis that were known for their great wickedness and ended up being totally destroyed by God. But notice, even in the midst of God's judgment, there is also God's grace and mercy to leave a few survivors and preserve a remnant to save them from themselves. But God left a few, even though he would have been right to destroy all of them because of their wickedness. As we keep reading, God continues in verse 10, explaining and making clear the hypocrisy of their worship and the emptiness of their sacrifice. So let's keep reading. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offering of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required you this trampling on my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moon, your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. I mentioned earlier that the Mosaic law requires Israelites to make sacrifices for their sins, that a blood sacrifice is needed. But it seems like here the people has made a mockery of these offering and worship. You know, they are insulting God with their hypocrisy. They're doing these rituals, but their hearts are not right before God. The courts in verse 12 is talking about the temple courts, new moon, Sabbath, calling a convocation, appointed feasts. You know, they are like different worship, uh, different worship services. And this is similar to 1 Samuel, you know, chapter 15, 22 to 23, when King Saul disobeyed God. So in 1 Samuel, the people took of the spoil from a war, sheep and oxen and the best of the things that God told them to, to destroy. But instead, they sacrificed to the Lord God. You know, so the prophet Samuel confronted Saul. And he said to Saul, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So Saul thought he was doing a great thing. He was taking the best and offering to God. But all the while, God has already told him, you need to destroy all these things. So it's not about the sacrifice. It's about obedience. Can you imagine if we have Sunday morning and evening prayer service, we have Bible study and special celebrations, but all the while we live hypocritical lives. We worship other gods, maybe like materialism or, or work. Maybe we go to 
on other days to Buddhist temples and burn incense. We are not loving people that is around us. We are sexually immoral. We lie or we cheat to get our way. And we take advantage of poor or the vulnerable. I think God would say to us, your worship service has become a burden to me, and when you pray, I will not listen. So I think it's worthwhile to take a pause here. I think indeed we live hypocritical lives often. The guy is making this plain and clear to us that is is sin, so we can so that he can save us. He's making it clear so that we know what's sin and so that he can save us from ourselves. So do we have some grudges against another brother or sister? Do we have unforgiveness that we're not trying to work on? Do we put up a face when we come to church, you know, but don't really let others know our real feeling or our real condition? Are we being divisive and disengaged as part of this body? The guy is saying that is being hypocritical. It is an abomination to him. But I do also want to remind us that God has shown us grace. He has given us Christ Jesus. So even though these things are hypocritical, we can confess, we can repent, and we can find forgiveness, and we can find wholeness. Let's look at what he tells the Israelites in verse 16. Wash yourself. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Now that we know how dangerous rebellion and hypocrisy is, God says there are things that the Israelites can do. They can wash themselves. They can stop doing evil and learn to do good. They not only can change themselves, but they can also influence their society to bring justice. But I do have a few words of caution here. Now, these are really good things to do, to fight for social justice, to do good and abstain from evil. But if we are doing them out of our own strength, our own will, power, our own willpower, no, they will not be sustainable. I would think we need to go on to the, the next section of this chapter to have a full picture of what it means to do good in a sustainable way. I fear that many good intention people take scripture like this out of context and they, they watch themselves, cease to do evil, they do good, they seek justice, correct oppression, they work with socially disadvantaged, but they do it out of their own self, their own righteousness. Now, this is very dangerous because either you end up becoming prideful because you think you are able to do these things, or you become disillusioned and discouraged because you are not able to sustain doing these things. Without the Lord, or without God being the motivation, the power, these actions will not last. We will see how God addressed this problem in the next section. So to summarize this second section, God explains the consequences of our sins to save us from ourselves because now we know why we are self-destructing. God explains the consequences of our sins to save us from ourselves because now we know why we are self-destructing. Let's move to our last section. God promises to save us from ourselves. God promises to save us from ourselves. Promises to take initiative and ownership of making things right. God promised Israel to cleanse their sin and restore their hearts to save them from themselves. Let's keep reading from verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The NIV translates verse 18 to, Come now, let us settle the matter. See, the idea here is that the Israelites have a big sin problem. The Lord is saying, now be reasonable and let's settle this matter together. Stop ignoring this issue. I have already made known to you the charges and explained to you the danger. You are not going to be able to solve this problem by yourself. I will save you from yourself. So even though your sin is bright red like scarlet and crimson, I will cleanse and make them white as snow, white like the wool. You see, God is the one who initiates and is responsible for making things right. He's going to provide a way, but it does require the Israelites to be willing and obedient to accept His way. Well, that way is fulfilled in Jesus Christ to cleanse not only Israelites' sins, but all of our sins. We need to be willing to confess our sin and be obedient to follow Him. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how to not become prideful or disillusioned or discouraged is by putting our dependency on Jesus Christ. How not to become prideful or disillusioned or discouraged is by putting our dependency on Jesus Christ. For many people here, I know you guys are pouring yourself into many ministries and that you're ministering to those around you, you know, whether it's personal ministries or public ministry. I think this is a good reminder to ground ourselves. If it doesn't depend on us, you know, it's hard for us to be prideful. Also, if it does not depend on us, it's also hard for us to be disillusioned or discouraged because it is on God. Dependency on Jesus is also the source of the sustainable power to do good, to resist evil, to fight for justice, because we are not depending on ourselves. So let's go back to Isaiah. In verse 20, God says, But if you refuse and rebel, God's judgment, which is represented by the sword, will consume them. When we continue reading in verse 21 to 23, Isaiah records Israel's degeneration from being faithful to being corrupt. Look there in verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murders. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Here the city is referring to Jerusalem. It's also a representation of Judah. We see this change from faithful to unfaithful, from righteousness to evil, from precious silver to discarded dross, from choice wine to wine diluted with water, from princes to thieves, from justice to, to corruption, from being proactive to being apathy or apathetic. Now this is the path that the people of God 
are going down in their rebellion and their sin. Down again toward their own destruction. And this is until we, we come to verse 24. 24 says, Therefore, the Lord declares, The Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hands against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselor as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. The Lord of hosts is another way to say the Lord of the heavenly hosts or the heavenly armies, the mighty one of Israel. You know, here Isaiah uses the mighty one to capture the idea of a, of a warrior, you know, the, a warrior that has given himself to fight for Israel, the mighty one of Israel. I want to highlight you know, the I will, the I will that is repeated three times in those verses. I will get relief in verse 24. I will turn my hands, verse 25, and I will restore, verse 26. You know, God's promise to, to relief, to turn and to restore. Verse 24 says, He will defeat his foes, the foes of sin and death themselves. Verse 25, by purifying metal, he will remove the impurities from his people. And in verse 26, the judges and counselors are referring to the leaders of Israel, that these leaders being restored. The city, again, you know, is referring to Jerusalem, will be returned to a faithful and a righteous city again. We can see God's promise to save Jerusalem from herself and to be restored to a faithful city once again. Looking at the last few verses, starting there at verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desire, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and he work and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Zion in verse 27 is again referring to Jerusalem. But it is also representation of all those who will be saved by repenting and turning from their rebellion. That these people will be redeemed by justice and righteousness. Which again is pointing to the righteousness purchased by the blood of Christ that provides justice. So in contrast, verse 28 to the end talks about the wicked being consumed by the Lord. That the wicked might seem strong, but only last for a brief moment. Oaks and gardens here are talking about pagan worship rituals and places. That both shall burn or be judged with no quenching or no escaping. You know, that this is what will happen to Judah and Jerusalem if they continue down this path of rebellion, of wickedness, and of hypocrisy. However, we do see that God promised to save the Israelites from themselves by cleansing their sin and restoring their hearts. Now, this is for 
this for Isaiah and the, and the Israelites of the time, you know, is pointing toward a king that will come, you know, to bring them hope. For us now, we know that the Savior King that is Isaiah is pointing to is Jesus Christ. You know, Christ has demonstrated the finished work to save us from ourselves on the cross. We can trust God's promise to save us from ourselves because now in Christ, we don't have to be afraid of ourselves. We can trust God's promises to save us from ourselves because now in Christ, we don't have to be afraid of ourselves. Well, I will conclude. Today, Isaiah showed us how the Holy One of Israel admonished sinful and rebellious Judah and how God explained why Judah is struck down for their rebellion and why their offering is in vain because of their hypocrisy. And lastly, that God promised Israel to cleanse their sins and restore their hearts to save them from themselves. And all of these pointed toward Jesus as the fulfillment of that promise to redeem not only his people, the nation of Israel, but all people everywhere that will repent and obey him. So for us, we no longer are bound by our own sins and destruction because God saved us from ourselves. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, help us to be reminded that your promise to send a Redeemer had already came true. That it has already been completed in the work of Jesus. Help us to trust that you will come again as you promised to judge the nations. And finally, Lord, we need your help to help us in conquering our tendency to rebel against you and to help us to turn to obey you as our Savior King. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.